Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We continue in our study of John. The setting that we have is that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And the Sanhedrin, I actually looked it up on uh, the correct pronunciation. Is it Sanhedrin? Is it Sanhedrin? And they really were helpful. They said it's both. (laughs) So if I say Sanhedrin one time and Sanhedrin the next time, that's just my inconsistency. But anyway, the Sanhedrin, that is the, the religious leaders, are so alarmed that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, and I say it again, after being dead four days, he raised him from the dead, that they have begun to set in motion a plan to kill him. So Jesus withdraws from Jerusalem, the Jerusalem area, to a small town called Ephraim, which is about 15 miles away, just outside the danger zone if you want to say it like that. And the Sanhedrin orders everybody in Jerusalem that if anyone knows where he is, that they're to report him so that they can seize him. They can arrest him. And then a multitude goes out to meet Jesus because they find out that he's come to Bethany on the way to the Passover, which is rapidly approaching And he stays in Bethany one night. And last week we saw how Mary anointed him with that extremely expensive perfume. She anointed him for his burial. Tonight we pick up in verse 9. And then we continue down through verse 26. Then the large crowd from the Jews learned that he was there. That is in Bethany. And they came, not because of Jesus only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh even the king of Israel and Jesus finding a young donkey sat on it as it is written fear not daughter of Zion behold your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So the crowd who was with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness about him. For this reason also the crowd went and met him because they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. 
And Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In verses 9 through 11, we see that the word has spread that Jesus is in Bethany. He's coming to the Passover. And so we understand that the crowd pours out of, uh, out of Jerusalem to go down to Bethany to see him. I mean, let's face it. Jesus and Lazarus are mega celebrities right now. They're the biggest thing in the whole Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean right now. The whole Jewish part of the Eastern Mediterranean. I'm going to say in a little bit, he's the biggest thing since David because of what he's done. So this crowd pours out of Jerusalem to go to Bethany. And we read here in verses 9 through 11 that the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also. That's incredible. They're plotting to murder a completely innocent man because of what Jesus has done for him. That sounds like the sort of thing we read about in Voice of the Martyrs. When people overseas are murdered simply because Christ has saved them. And they've turned to worship him. And we ask ourselves, how could they do that? I mean, this sounds like something out of Stalin's Red Terror. Where people were killed simply to fulfill a quota that Stalin had set for a particular part of Russia. Kill so many people so that the rest of the people will be terrified and won't try to do anything against us. How could... These are, <laughs> these are supposed to be priests of God. How can these priests of God who are supposed to be teaching the people the law of God which plainly says you shall not murder... How could they do this? Well, Jesus has already told us how they could do this. In chapter 8, verse 44, when he's confronting the chief priests and the Pharisees, he says, you are of your father the devil. That's why you want to kill me. Because he was a murderer from the beginning. And you're just like him. The reason that they can so cold-bloodedly plan to murder Lazarus along with the Lord Jesus Christ is because even though they are religious leaders, their father is the devil, is Satan himself. And they have the same heart that Satan has. The deadliest threat to a lost soul in the world is lost religion. Especially lost religious leaders. Then in verses 12 through 19, we have what we call the triumphal entry. 
and in the providence of God. In our reading through the book of of Mark tonight, we just so happen to be at that portion. And so we have the synoptic version of the triumphal entry, which gives a lot more detail than John does. And since we've already read that, I don't need to go into that. All we know here is that it's the next day. The next day after Mary has anointed the Lord Jesus for his burial. And this large crowd of pilgrims from all over the world. Maybe as many as 500,000 people in Jerusalem at this time. Maybe. From all over the world. And they hear that Jesus is coming. So they come pouring out of Jerusalem to meet that large crowd that had gone out yesterday to meet him along with those who had been in Bethany when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and so you got these two crowds are merging together as Jesus and his disciples are walking up toward Jerusalem and then at some point we hear that Jesus stops walking and he tells his disciples to go get him a donkey the foal of a donkey and then he gets, he sits down on the donkey to ride into Jerusalem. Well, what, was he tired? No, it was to fulfill scripture. It was to fulfill the book of Zechariah. Let me read to you what Zechariah 9.9 9 says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation. Man, is that right on? lowly and mounted on a donkey even on a colt the foal of a pack animal you see what's going on here everybody sees that Jesus is coming to Messiah is is coming to Jerusalem everybody in Jerusalem all these pilgrims all these people that live in Jerusalem except for the Pharisees and the chief priests all the people in the surrounding areas everyone that has come from all over the world to observe the Passover in Jerusalem that's been hearing nothing but Jesus, Jesus, Jesus and he has raised a man from the dead and there's, that's one of the signs of Messiah opening the eyes of the blind restoring the lame setting the prisoners free raising the dead this is Messiah they are convinced that Jesus is the Messiah they are convinced that Jesus is the son of David which he is even though they don't know that They they don't have his lineage. We have his lineage, but they don't. All that he has done, and especially raising Lazarus from the dead, has convinced them this is the Messiah. This is the son of David. This is the promised one. This is the king of Israel. This is God's king of Israel. And he's coming back into Jerusalem. He's coming back for his coronation. He's coming back to be declared the king of Israel. He's coming to throw the Romans out. He's coming to set up the new kingdom. He's coming to expand Israel to its full extent as as what was promised in the covenants that we'll go all the way from Lebanon all the way down to Egypt and then all the way east to the Euphrates River. He's coming to restore the golden age or to inaugurate, if you will, the golden messianic age. In his time, we expect that we're going to see the power of Israel be the dominant power over the whole Middle East. Under his reign, 
we're going to find that we'll excel all of the rest or exceed all the rest of the, of the nations in wealth. It'll be like it was in Solomon's day where silver was considered worthless. That if it wasn't gold, it wasn't worth having. And like the book of Isaiah 65 says, under his reign, there'll be no more miscarriages. There'll be no more infant death. We'll live to be a hundred Everyone will live to be a hundred. This is the golden age of Israel. Right now we're under the Romans heel. But here's our king. Our king is coming to us. And so you have these multitudes of people. Tens of thousands of people are flooding out of the city. They're mobbing the sides of the roads. And look what they do. They take branches of palm trees and branches of other trees and they began to shout Hosanna and this is from uh, Psalm 118 that the rabbis recognized was a messianic psalm uh, Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26 this is a direct quote from that Hosanna, Hosanna means Yahweh save us save us Well, Jesus is coming into town they're crying out, God save us. Here's your Messiah. Set us free from the Romans. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Even the king of Israel. That's what the, the multitudes expect. That Jesus is going to come in. They're going to take him up to the temple. They're going to crown him the king of Israel at the temple. He is going to miraculously drive the Romans out of Jerusalem. He is coming. What miracle power does this man not have? He will miraculously drive the Romans out of all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And by the way, we'll drive the Samaritans out of Samaria as well. We will restore Israel. That's what they're expecting. And the Sanhedrin knows it. And they're terrified. Because they're convinced that Jesus is a false Messiah. And all that's going to happen is he's going to cause a revolution in Jerusalem. These people, I mean, if you've got 500,000 people, you can easily overwhelm a legion of Roman soldiers. I mean, you just bury them under dead bodies of nothing else. And so they'll drive the Romans out of Jerusalem all right. But just like what happens in 66 AD, the Romans are going to come back with a vengeance. And you remember what they said in chapter 11? If we don't stop him, the Romans are going to come and take our place and our nation. So they are terrified. Their worst fears are being materialized right before their very eyes. Look at what it says in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I mean, they're in utter despair at this point. We're going to lose it all. Now, they really didn't realize what they had just said. When they say the world is going after him, what they're thinking about is everybody there in Jerusalem and all the Jewish people in the eastern Mediterranean. That was the world to them. This isn't all the nations. This is just the Jews. 
that these Jews from all over the world are going after him. By the time that John wrote this letter, there were churches established throughout the Roman Empire. All the way from Parthia to Spain. From Egypt and North Africa up into Greece and even onto the edge of the frontier. Churches had been established all over the Roman world. Disciples were being made of all the known nations. Even in India. And today, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ has spread to every continent on earth. Almost every nation has disciples living and preaching the Lord Jesus Christ in them. There's still about 6,000, is what I heard, people groups, which some of them can be very, very small people groups, that still haven't heard the gospel. But almost every nation on earth the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has penetrated it and has produced fruit in tens of millions of believers. We have a hard time getting a handle on that here in America because everybody in America is a Christian. Right. It's like Laverne said this morning. How hard it is to try to evangelize here in the United States. Because everybody says they're a Christian. If you're not a Muslim, you're not a Jew, that makes you a Christian. That means if you believe that Jesus actually lived and existed, then that makes you a Christian. Yeah. In their thoughts. And then you have the rest of the people who just don't care. They just don't have time for God. I just don't want to be bothered with that sort of thing. But you go into Africa and you go into Asia. You even go into the Middle East. Go into Iran of all places these days. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not including that false prosperity so-called gospel that's sweeping those parts of of the world. But the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ is exploding. We heard it from her this morning. About even at funerals. People being converted at funerals, going to a village and say, would anybody be interested in a Bible study? Boom, 25 adults are sitting down around you. And then as soon as you finish teaching them, they're begging you, please start a church here. Please give us a pastor. Please give us a teacher. I mean, they say the world has gone after him. Brothers and sisters, the world has gone after him. And the world continues to go after him. They continue to seek the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior when the Holy Spirit opens up their eyes. Well, let me go on. Then down in verse 20, we see the world comes to Jesus. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These Greeks would have been Gentiles who had abandoned paganism and who had turned to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. Some of them would have been what are known as God-fearers. These are Gentiles that had not been circumcised and were not necessarily keeping the dietary law of Israel, but they believed in Yahweh. They had been to the synagogue enough and heard the truth enough that they knew that Yahweh is the true and living God. And so they had trusted Yahweh and they were worshiping Yahweh as much as they could without being full-fledged converts to Judaism. 
But some of the rest of them, these may have been proselytes. A proselyte was a Gentile who had become a Jew. For a man, it meant circumcision. And then he observed, you observe all of the law. You observe all of the feast. You observe all the dietary restrictions. All of that. You become a Jew. And proselytes were accepted as full-fledged Jews by the rest of the Jews. We don't know if they're just God-fearers or if they're proselytes, but it really doesn't matter. Because both of them, God-fearers and proselytes, would have come to Jerusalem for the three feasts every year. And these believers, if I can put it like that, these who believed in Yahweh, says, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. There's all kind of conjecture why they would have approached Philip. We're not going to get into it tonight. And they started asking him. In other words, they kept on asking him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Yeah, I reckon they would. I mean, think about it. What's going on? They're coming into Jerusalem. They're not in the city yet. There are tens of thousands of people screaming at the tops of their voices, Hosanna! Welcome to the King of Israel! I mean, that man on that donkey over there is the center of their universe. I mean, if CNN and Fox had been there, they would have been trying to get an interview with Jesus. Now, it amazes me that these common Greek believers think that they're going to get an interview with Jesus when he is at the pinnacle of his power and his popularity. Who do they think they are? But since he is the biggest thing in Israel since David, they want to talk to him. They want to be near him. We'll get to that again at the very end. Philip came and told Andrew. I mean, he's not really sure he should bring these guys and bother Jesus. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered to them saying nothing about the Greeks. What's going on? The crowds. Again, the crowds screaming themselves hoarse. Jesus is the center of attention of maybe a hundred thousand people. Every eye, every anticipation is on him. Everyone knows that in an hour or two hours or maybe tomorrow, we're going to see the kingdom of God come to earth. The messianic age has arrived. We're going to see all the wonders that we have anticipated and longed for all these years. There's laughter. There's joy. There's this great anticipation. Jesus is at the peak of his power. He's at the peak of his popularity. And now he's going to put everything in perspective. To everyone, that would be the crowds and the twelve, this is the triumphal event. Happy days are here again. But to Jesus, 
he knows why he's going into Jerusalem. To Jesus, the cross is looming larger than it's ever loomed before. He's not going to be crowned by the Jews, and he knows it. He's not going to be admired or sought or served. He's going to be betrayed and abandoned. He's going to be mocked and tortured. He's going to be nailed to a cross and absorb all the Father's wrath for all those that the Father has given him. And he knows it. So everyone else is screaming and laughing and clapping and all Jesus can see around him is these smiling, laughing faces. But he knows what's going to happen soon. So he begins to put things in perspective. Notice what he says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. <laughs> and you can imagine the twelve walking around and saying, oh, Yes, it is, Master. It sure is. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Look at all these people. Look how they're glorifying you. Everything we've been anticipating for three years is coming to fruition. We're about to take over. You're about to be established as king. Then he says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You think I'm being glorified now? No, the only way I can be glorified is the way the Father and I have chosen for me to be glorified, and that's through the cross. When I buy all of those that the Father has given me from before the foundation of the world, when I buy them for Him in my sacrifice for them, when I take their place on the cross, and when I take all the wrath that they deserve, and I take it on myself, that's when I'll be glorified. When I'm buried and I'm raised from the dead to vindicate everything I've said and all that I've promised, that's when I'll be glorified. When I'm ascended back to heaven and I sit in my Father's throne, then I'll be glorified. Up until this time, I've been telling you men over and over again, this is where we're going. We're going to Jerusalem for this. The hour's coming. The hour's coming. The hour's coming. The hour's now. Now's the time. This is what I've been telling you about. It says, I have to die. But he compares himself to a grain of wheat. And again, they don't get it because he doesn't say, I am the grain of wheat. But he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. That's what happened. You plant a seed. The outer covering of the seed, the carbohydrate in the seed, rots, becomes food for the little sperm inside the seed, and it, that's where the life is, and it sprouts up. Unless the seed is planted in the ground and, quote, dies, then the life in the seed won't sprout up to produce much fruit. Jesus is talking about himself. In order to be glorified, he has to die. Not just die. 
We know that Jesus died for our sins. It's what he went through before he died. He suffered for our sins. He took the full wrath of the Father and his own full wrath. Because it's the wrath of God that's being satisfied. It's the wrath of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that's being satisfied in his sufferings on the cross. He says, unless I die for my people, they won't have life. They'll be condemned. They'll be judged on the last day and all be cast into hell, which is what we deserve. Unless I die for them, that's what's going to happen. But if I die, then life will sprout forth from my death. And it will produce abundant life. Abundant life for all of those who trust in me. Hmm. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Millions of fruit. Maybe even before the Lord comes back, billions will be converted to the Lord Jesus Christ because he died for his people. He died for all those who will believe in him. Look at verse 25. He who loves his life loses it. Hmm. That's a great paradox of Christianity. In order to live, you have to die. He who loves his life loses it. He who loves his life here and now. He who loves everything that the world has to offer. He who loves the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. He who, who loves all the comforts, all the pleasures, all the prestige or supposed prestige that you can get in this life. He who loves that is going to lose it. If that's what you're all about and you just don't have time for God. I mean, maybe when I'm older, but not now. Maybe on my deathbed, but not now. He who loves his life will lose it. What are you taking to the grave? I mean, we hear about these fools that get planted in, in Cadillacs. So what? They can't take it anywhere. You die, and you die by yourself. Naked I came into the world and naked I will leave it with nothing else. Everything that those who love this world work for all their life, work for so hard all their life to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. They lose it all when they die. Bill Gates is going to be as poor as I am when he dies. But it's not only that. He who loves his life loses it. That word loses, you get the relationship to the word lost there. The lost of those who have been lost. <laughs> you lose it when you're lost. It's apaluo. It means to be destroyed. To be, to be lost in the Bible doesn't mean to be misplaced. 
means be destroyed. It's like two locomotives. Uh, Pat and I knew a man that was an engineer for the Seaboard Railroad and up in Cherryville, North Carolina. One day somebody threw the, the wrong switch and Garland's locomotive that he was engineering, that he was driving, was coming at full speed and met another locomotive coming on the same track the other way. They both threw their brakes on as hard as they could, but good night. Trains, you've got all that inertia from all that mass, and they hit head on. And it destroyed both of those locomotives. By the grace of God, Garland lived, but it destroyed both of those locomotives. That's what it means to be lost. You see, that train engine was still a train engine, but it was destroyed. A lost person in hell is still a human being, but they're destroyed. They can't enjoy any of the things that we were designed to have to enjoy. They're ruined. He says, if anyone loves his life here and now, it will destroy you. The more you indulge yourself, the more it will destroy you. I remember back in the early 70s when cocaine became popular among those who could afford it. And everyone was convinced that cocaine was a harmless recreational drug. That you couldn't get hooked on cocaine. And the standard joke was the little snow never hurt anybody. How many people were ruined by cocaine? How many people were destroyed by cocaine? And I'm talking about rich and famous people that could afford it. And they found out that the more they indulged themselves, the more they destroyed themselves. He who loves himself, he who loves his life, loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. There's that much fruit that the Lord Jesus has just been talking about. Eternal life. So he says, he who hates his life in this world. In other words, he who opens up his eyes by the grace of God and realizes, wait a minute, I'm being played for a fool. Satan and the world and my flesh have been playing me for a fool. I thought I was in control and I'm realizing now I'm just a slave to all of these pleasures. I'm a slave to my own flesh. When it says he who hates his life realizes how in the world could I have gotten in this situation? The word hate there, you want to get a clear picture of it. You go back to Luke chapter 14 and verse 26 where the Lord Jesus says if anyone will come after me and hates not his father and mother, brothers and sisters, wife and children, and his own, life's also, his own life also cannot be my disciples. Was Jesus telling us to hate our family? But what, he's telling, what he's saying there is, unless your loyalty and your love for me is so strong that your love and loyalty for your family compared to that looks like hate, you can't be my disciple. I demand absolute unconditional supreme allegiance is what he's saying there he's saying the same thing here <clears throat> you look at what your flesh and the world and Satan have done to you and you say I hate this I want to live 
tired of being a slave. He who hates his life in this world will keep his life to life eternal. Because I am not going to be a slave to my passions any longer. I'm not going to be a slave to mere fun any longer. Lord, what would you have me to do? And he turns to Christ. He's going to keep it to life eternal. Now, verses 23 and 24 are about Jesus. Because he's talking about dying for his people. Only Jesus can die for us and give us eternal life. But when you get down here to verses 25 and 26, he's talking about us. Only Jesus can die for us. But we must die to clinging to owning our lives in order to receive the life he gives. That's what Luke 9.23 is all about. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Hmm. Deny himself. Deny that you'll ever be good enough to earn eternal life. Deny that you can ever achieve abundant life on your own. Deny that you have the answer to death and eternity in yourself. Take up his cross daily. That means to die to self-autonomy. You're no longer the ruler of your life. To die to the notion that you ought to rule your life. And he says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Trust me explicitly as Lord. Entrust yourself to me as your Lord. And again, here's this paradox. That if we're going to live, we have to die. If we're going to have the life that Christ died to purchase for us, we have to die to the, the lordship of our own lives. We have to die to the notion that I ought to be in control of my own life. And it's only right for me to be in control of my own life. Die to the notion that I'm good enough. Die to the notion that God owes it to me. Die to all of that foolishness. Hmm. If you're going to live, truly live, you have to die. We have to die to being our own God. But when you do that, look at the reward. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If anyone serves me, diakoneo, to be, if you will, a table waiter. You know how, how a table waiter does, a server in a restaurant. If they're any good, what they do is that they bring you your iced tea, because obviously that's what waiters ought to do, is bring you iced tea. They'll bring you your iced tea. They'll bring you your chips and your salsa. They'll bring you your, the menu. They say, would you like to order now? Or should I come back in a few minutes? They take your order. They bring you the food. And if they're a good server, they watch you. And when that tea glass starts to get a little empty, they come and they pour more tea in there. 
if you raise your hand, they see it and they come over. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about. You see, a good server, it's not just what they do, it's their attitude. Their attitude is, I'm here for you. I'm here to help take care of you. And I've already mentioned this before, this evening. It's the attitude that Paul had on the road to Damascus. And in Acts chapter 22, Paul's giving his testimony to his conversion. And he said that he saw this bright light, brighter than the noonday sun. He fell to the ground. He couldn't see because of the bright light. And he heard this voice that said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. And what did Saul say? Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And if you'll pray this prayer, repeat after me. No, that's not what Jesus said. He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That was it. What was Saul's response? Lord, what would you have me do? That's the attitude. That's the server attitude. That's what it is. Lord, what would you have me do? I'm yours. You bought me. I belong to you. He says, if anyone serves me like that, he must follow me. That's, yeah. If you're going to be able to serve the Lord, you've got to at least be paying attention to what he says, right? If you're going to serve the Lord in these days, you have to be near him so he can tell you what he wants, right? You can't serve the Lord and not pay attention to him. You can't serve the Lord and contradict him. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. That doesn't mean simply this. That if I go to work, you're going to be with me. And if I go to the store, you're going to come with me. No. That means that where I am, there my servant will be also. Let not your hearts be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. That's what he's saying. Serve him and get that reward. But wait a minute. That's not all. And this is the part that just blew me away this week. If anyone serves me, if you have that attitude of, Lord, what should I do? Lord, what do you want? If that's your attitude, if you've got your eye on Christ, if your ear is attuned to him, if he does this, and yes, sir, right there. If anyone serves me, He must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. No, no, that that can't be right. The Father, Yahweh the Father, creator of the universe, the one who says, light be, and light is, the one who says, planets be. 
plants be, animals be. The one who just speaks everything into creation. The one who, who has made everything. The one who provides everything. The one who is sovereignly sovereign over everything sovereignly. You know what I mean? This is, is God. The true and living God. This is Him who is spirit, who is immense, who fills all things. There is no place where He is not. This is Him. He's going to honor me? That can't be right. I mean, who am I that He would honor me? But then again, I speak as a fool, don't I? Because Jesus just said, My Father will honor Him. Honor Him. What do you mean, honor Him? Hmm. It needs to be close to Him. What was the big deal about being one of the twelve? You were close to Jesus. Coming into Jerusalem, everybody's screaming, everybody's hollering. They're going out of their minds with delirious joy. Our king is here. And the disciples are out there scattered among the crowd, right? Uh-uh, no. You better believe the twelve are right up there with him. Yeah, I'm with him. I'm with him. Yeah, I'm Peter. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm Bartholomew. Yes, we're, we're with the king. You know, To be honored means to be with him. I think about... James and John's mother. This is my request. This is my request for my sons. That one might sit on your right, one might sit on your left. To be close to you. To be with you. You remember Mephibosheth? Yeah. That's uh, Jonathan's son. And Saul and Jonathan and, and Jonathan's brothers were all killed by the Philistines. And Mephibosheth nurse hears that the Philistines are coming and she grabs up Mephibosheth when he's just a little boy and she's going to run out the door with him and, and take him to safety and she falls and lands on top of him and crushes his feet and he's crippled for the rest of his life and as Eric has said several times in sermons there's David as he's secure as king and he says is, is there any descendants of Jonathan that are left that I might do good to them my dear beloved Jonathan my dear brother I see there, there's one Mephibosheth he's down at Nob he says go get him and you can imagine that Mephibosheth all his life said has heard if the king's soldiers show up it's over and one day the door burst open or there's a knock at the probably a knock at the door and his nurse goes and opens the door and there's David's soldiers and they say is Mephibosheth here and they figure it's all over yes Mephibosheth says yes I'm here come with us please and they mount him or however they mounted him to carry him there and he comes up to David's palace in Jerusalem and they bring him in to David and David says Mephibosheth yes Lord from this day forward you're part of my family from this day forward 
you sit at my table and you eat with me. And in Luke chapter 22, the Lord Jesus Christ is talking to the twelve, but he's also talking to all who will serve him. And he says, you will eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. To dine with the king of kings at his table. What an honor. To walk close with him in his glory. Like the twelve did on earth. What an honor. You remember Luke 14? Jesus is talking about the wedding feast. He's using this as an example. Because he went to eat with some Pharisees. And he noticed how everybody was grabbing the best seats. The most honorable seats. And he said, when, when you go to a feast, when you go to have dinner, don't grab the best seat. Lest someone, lest the, the master come in and say, move down. Here's a man more honorable than you. Let him have your seat. He said, no, take the lowest seat. So that when the master, the king, the owner of the dinner, comes in and says, friend, what are you doing down here? Get up. Come up. Get closer to me. If anyone serves him, my father will honor him. My father will say, friend, get closer. Sit closer to me. What a reward. If you love your life in this world, you're going to lose it serve Jesus in this world God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are going to say come sit close to me hallelujah what a savior stand with me please praise God from whom all blessings flow Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. And we are dismissed.